People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos is brought to you by FoundItemClothing.com. Check out their Cthulhu slippers and cool cult film t-shirts. Edited and produced by D.B. Spitzer. Featuring Sarah Fee and D.B. Spitzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. PGTTCM is part of the Dark Mists Network. Check out all the cool podcasts that we like at darkmyths.org. Subscribe where you subscribe. Like where you like. Rate where you rate. We recommend podbean.com and Apple Podcasts as well. Find PGTTCM on social media at PGTTCM and on YouTube at People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. If you want to donate, go to the patron button on pgttcm.podbean.com or paypal.me slash pgttcm. All donations receive an on-air congratulations. Shop at pgttcm.threadless.com or pgttcm.com at the shop. PGTTCM is an exploration of the Cthulhu Mythos, weird fiction, the gothic literary tradition, classic sci-fi, fantasy, and horror. Thank you. On with the show. Recorded by Nicole Doolin on the web at NicoleDoolin.com The Turn of the Screw by Henry James Chapter 2 This came home to me when, two days later, I drove over with Floor to meet, as Mrs. Gross said, the little gentleman, and all the more for an incident that, presenting itself the second evening, had deeply disconcerted me. The first day had been, on the whole, as I have expressed, reassuring, but I was to see it wind up in keen apprehension. The post-bag, that evening, it came late, contained a letter for me which, however, in the hand of my employer I found to be composed but of a few words enclosing another, addressed to himself with a seal still unbroken. This, I recognize, is from the headmaster, and the headmaster's an awful bore. Read him, please. Deal with him. But mind you, don't report. Not a word. I'm off. I broke the seal with a great effort, so great a one that I was a long time coming to it, took the unopened missive at last up to my room, and only attacked it just before going to bed. I had better have let it wait till morning for it gave me a second sleepless night. With no counsel to take the next day, I was full of distress, and it finally got so the better of me that I determined to open myself at least to Mrs. Gross. What does it mean the child's dismissed his school? She gave me a look that I remarked at the moment. Then, visibly, with a quick blankness, seemed to try to take it back. But aren't they all sent home? Yes, but only for the holidays. Miles may never go back at all. Consciously under my attention, she reddened. They won't take him? They absolutely decline. At this she raised her eyes, which she had turned from me. I saw them fill with good tears. What has he done? I hesitated. Then I judged best simply to hand her my letter, which, however, had the effect of making her, without taking it, simply put her hands behind her, she shook her head sadly. Such things are not for me, miss. My counselor couldn't read. I winced at my mistake, which I attenuated as I could, 
and opened my letter again to repeat it to her. Then, faltering in the act and folding it up once more, I put it back in my pocket. Is he really bad? The tears were still in her eyes. Do the gentlemen say so? They go into no particulars. They simply express their regret that it should be impossible to keep him. That can have only one meaning. Mrs. Gross listened with dumb emotion. She forbore to ask me what this meaning might be. So that, presently, to put the thing with some coherence and with the mere aid of her presence to my own mind, I went on, that he's an injury to the others. At this, with one of the quick turns of simple folk, she suddenly flamed up. Master Miles? Him an injury? There was such a flood of good faith in it that, though I had not yet seen the child, my very fears made me jump to the absurdity of the idea. I found myself to meet my friend the better, offering it, on the spot, sarcastically, to his poor little innocent mates. It's too dreadful, cried Mrs. Gross, to say such cruel things. Why, he's scarce ten years old. Yes, yes, it would be incredible. She was evidently grateful for such a profession. See him, miss, first. Then believe it. I felt forthwith a new impatience to see him. It was the beginning of a curiosity that, for all the next hours, was to deepen almost to pain. Mrs. Gross was aware, I could judge, of what she had produced in me, and she followed it up with assurance. You might as well believe it of the little lady. Bless her, she added the next moment. Look at her. I turned and saw that Flora, whom ten minutes before I had established in the schoolroom with a sheet of white paper, a pencil, and a copy of nice round O's, now presented herself to view at the open door. She expressed in her little way an extraordinary detachment from disagreeable duties, looking to me, however, with a great childish light that seemed to offer it as a mere result of the affection she had conceived for my person, which had rendered necessary that she should follow me. I needed nothing more than this to feel the full force of Mrs. Gross's comparison, and, catching my pupil in my arms, covered her with kisses in which there was a sob of atonement. Nonetheless, the rest of the day I watched for further occasion to approach my colleague, especially as, toward evening, I began to fancy she rather sought to avoid me. I overtook her, I remember, on the staircase. We went down together, and at the bottom I detained her, holding her there with a hand on her arm. I take what you said to me at noon as a declaration that you've never known him to be bad. She threw back her head. She had clearly by this time and very honestly adopted an attitude. Oh, never known him? I don't pretend that. I was upset again. Then you have known him? Yes, indeed, miss. Thank God. On reflection, I accepted this. You mean that a boy who never is, is no boy for me. I held her tighter. You like them with the spirit to be naughty. Then, keeping pace with her answer, so do I. I eagerly brought out. But not to the degree to contaminate. To contaminate? My big word left her at a loss. I explained it. To corrupt. She stared, taking my meaning in. 
but it produced in her an odd laugh. Are you afraid he'll corrupt you? She put the question with such a fine, bold humor that, with a laugh, a little silly, doubtless, to match her own, I gave way for the time to the apprehension of ridicule. By the next day, as the hour for my drive approached, I cropped up in another place. What was the lady who was here before? The last governess? She was also young and pretty. Almost as young and almost as pretty, miss, even as you. Ah, then I hope her youth and her beauty helped her. I recollect throwing off. He seems to like us young and pretty. Oh, he did, Mrs. Gross assented. It was the way he liked everyone. She had no sooner spoken indeed than she caught herself up. I mean that's his way. The master's. I was struck. But of whom did you speak first? She looked blank, but she colored. Why, of him. Of the master? Of who else? There was so obviously no one else that the next moment I had lost my impression of her having accidentally said more than she meant, and I merely asked what I wanted to know. Did she see anything in the boy? That wasn't right. She never told me. I had a scruple, but I overcame it. Was she careful? Particular. Mrs. Gross appeared to try to be conscientious. About some things, yes. But not about all. Again, she considered. Well, miss, she's gone. I won't tell tales. I quite understand your feeling. I hastened to reply. But I thought it, after an instant, not opposed to this concession to pursue. Did she die here? No. She went off. I don't know what there was in this brevity of Mrs. Gross's that struck me as ambiguous. Went off to die? Mrs. Gross looked straight out of the window, but I felt that, hypothetically, I had a right to know what young persons engaged for Bly were expected to do. She was taken ill, you mean, and went home? She was not taken ill, so far as appeared, in this house. She left it, at the end of the year to go home, as she said, for a short holiday, to which the time she had put in had certainly given her a right. We had then a young woman, a nursemaid, who had stayed on and who was a good girl and clever, and she took the children altogether for the interval. But our young lady never came back, and at the very moment I was expecting her I heard from the master that she was dead. I turned this over. But of what? He never told me. But please, miss, said Mrs. Gross, I must get to my work. The Turn of the Screw by Henry James Chapter 3 Her thus turning her back on me was fortunately not, for my just preoccupations, a snub that could check the growth of our mutual esteem. We met after I had brought home little Miles, more intimately than ever on the ground of my stupefaction, my general emotion. So monstrous was I then ready to pronounce it that such a child as had now been revealed to me should be under an interdict. I was a little late on the scene, and I felt, as he stood wistfully looking out for me before the door of the inn at which the coach had put him down, that I had seen him 
on the instant, without and within, in the great glow of freshness, the same positive fragrance of purity in which I had, from the first moment, seen his little sister. He was incredibly beautiful, and Mrs. Gross had put her finger on it. Everything but a sort of passion of tenderness for him was swept away by his presence. What I then and there took him to my heart for was something divine that I have never found to the same degree in any child. His indescribable little air of knowing nothing in the world but love. It would have been impossible to carry a bad name with a greater sweetness of innocence. And by the time I had got back to Bly with him, I remained merely bewildered. So far, that is, as I was not outraged by the sense of the horrible letter locked up in my room in a drawer. As soon as I could compass a private word with Mrs. Gross, I declared to her that it was grotesque. She promptly understood me. You mean the cruel charge? It doesn't live an instant. My dear woman, look at him! She smiled at my pretension to have discovered his charm. I assure you, miss, I do nothing else. What will you say, then? She immediately added, in answer to the letter. I had made up my mind. Nothing. And to his uncle? I was incisive. Nothing. And to the boy himself? I was wonderful. Nothing. She gave with her apron a great wipe to her mouth. Then I'll stand by you. We'll see it out. We'll see it out. I ardently echoed, giving her my hand to make it a vow. She held me there a moment, then whisked up her apron again with her detached hand. Would you mind, miss, if I used the freedom to kiss me? No. I took the good creature in my arms, and, after we had embraced like sisters, felt still more fortified and indignant. This, at all events, was for the time, a time so full that, as I recall the way it went, it reminds me of all the art I now need to make it a little distinct. What I look back at with amazement is the situation I accepted. I had undertaken, with my companion, to see it out, and I was under a charm, apparently, that could smooth away the extent and the far and difficult connections of such an effort. I was lifted aloft on a great wave of infatuation and pity. I found it simple, in my ignorance, my confusion, and perhaps my conceit, to assume that I could deal with a boy whose education for the world was all on the point of beginning. I am unable even to remember at this day what proposal I framed for the end of his holidays, and the resumption of his studies. Lessons with me, indeed, that charming summer we all had a theory that he was to have but I now feel that, for weeks, the lessons must have been rather my own. I learned something, at first. Certainly, that had not been one of the teachings of my small, smothered life. Learned to be amused, and even amusing, and not to think for the morrow. It was the first time, in a manner, that I had known space and air and freedom all the music of summer, and all the mystery of nature. And then there was consideration, and consideration was sweet. 
Oh, it was a trap. Not designed, but deep to my imagination, to my delicacy, perhaps to my vanity, to whatever in me was most excitable. The best way to picture it all is to say that I was off my guard. They gave me so little trouble. They were of a gentleness so extraordinary. I used to speculate, but even this with a dim disconnectedness, as to how the rough future, for all futures are rough, would handle them and might bruise them. They had the bloom of health and happiness, and yet, as if I had been in charge of a pair of little grandees, of princes of the blood, for whom everything, to be right, would have to be enclosed and protected, the only form that, in my fancy, the after years could take for them was that of a romantic, a really royal extension of the garden and the park. It may be, of course, above all, that what suddenly broke into this gives the previous time a charm of stillness, that hush in which something gathers or crouches. The change was actually like the spring of a beast. In the first weeks the days were long. They often, at their finest, gave me what I used to call my own hour, the hour when, for my pupils, tea-time and bedtime having come and gone, I had, before my final retirement, a small interval alone, much as I liked my companions. This hour was the thing in the day I liked most, and I liked it best of all when, as the light faded, or rather I should say, the day lingered and the last calls of the last bird sounded in a flushed sky. From the old trees, I could take a turn into the grounds and enjoy, almost with a sense of property that amused and flattered me, the beauty and dignity of the place. It was a pleasure at these moments to feel myself tranquil and justified, doubtless, perhaps, also to reflect that by my discretion, my quiet good sense and general high propriety, I was giving pleasure, if he ever thought of it, to the person to whose pressure I had responded. What I was doing was what he had earnestly hoped and directly asked of me, and that I could, after all, do it, proved even a greater joy than I had expected. I dare say I fancied myself, in short, a remarkable young woman, and took comfort in the faith that this would more publicly appear. Well, I needed to be remarkable, to offer a front to the remarkable things that presently gave their first sign. It was plump, one afternoon, in the middle of my very hour, the children were tucked away and I had come out for my stroll. One of the thoughts that, as I don't in the least shrink now from noting, used to be with me in these wanderings, was that it would be as charming and as a charming story suddenly to meet someone. Someone would appear there at the turn of a path and would stand before me and smile and approve. I didn't ask more than that. 
I only asked that he should know, and the only way to be sure he knew would be to see it, and the kind light of it in his handsome face. That was exactly present to me, by which I mean the face was, when, on the first of these occasions, at the end of a long June day, I stopped short on emerging from one of the plantations and coming into view of the house. What arrested me on the spot, and with a shock much greater than any vision had allowed for, was the sense that my imagination had, in a flash, turned real. He did stand there. But high up, beyond the lawn, and at the very top of the tower to which, on that first morning, little Flora had conducted me. This tower was one of a pair, square, incongruous, crenellated structures, that were distinguished for some reason, though I could see little difference as the new and the old. They flanked opposite ends of the house, and were probably architectural absurdities, redeemed in a measure indeed by not being wholly disengaged, nor of a height too pretentious, dating in their gingerbread antiquity from a romantic revival that was already a respectable past. I admired them, had fancies about them, for we could all profit in a degree, especially when they loomed through the dusk by the grandeur of their actual battlements. Yet it was not at such an elevation that the figure I had so often invoked seemed most in place. It produced in me this figure in the clear twilight. I remember two distinct gasps of emotion, which were, sharply, the shock of my first and that of my second surprise. My second was a violent perception of the mistake of my first. The man who met my eyes was not the person I had precipitately supposed. There came to me thus a bewilderment of vision of which, after these years, there is no living view that I can hope to give. An unknown man in a lonely place is a permitted object of fear to a young woman privately bred. And the figure that faced me was, a few more seconds assured me, as little anyone else I knew, as it was the image that had been in my mind. I had not seen it in Harley Street. I had not seen it anywhere. The place, moreover, in the strangest way in the world, had on the instant, and by the very fact of its appearance, become a solitude. To me at least, making my statement here with the deliberation with which I have never made it, the whole feeling of the moment returns. It was as if, while I took in what I did take in, all the rest of the scene had been stricken with death. I can hear again, as I write, the intense hush in which the sounds of evening dropped. The rooks stopped cawing in the golden sky, and the friendly hour lost, for the minute, all its voice. But there was no other change in nature. 
unless indeed it were a change that I saw with a stranger sharpness. The gold was still in the sky, the clearness in the air, and the man who looked at me over the battlements was as definite as a picture in a frame. That's how I thought, with extraordinary quickness, of each person that he might have been and that he was not. We were confronted across our distance quite long enough for me to ask myself with intensity who then he was, and to feel, as an effect of my inability to say, a wonder that in a few instants more became intense. The great question, or one of these, is, afterward, I know, with regard to certain matters, the question of how long they have lasted. Well, this matter of mine, think what you will of it, lasted while I caught at a dozen possibilities, none of which made a difference for the better, that I could see, in their having been in the house, and for how long, above all, a person of whom I was in ignorance. It lasted while I just bridled a little with the sense that my office demanded that there should be no such ignorance and no such person. It lasted while this visitant, at all events. And there was a touch of the strange freedom, as I remember, in the sign of familiarity of his wearing no hat, seemed to fix me, from his position, with just the question, just the scrutiny through the fading light that his own presence provoked. We were too far apart to call to each other, but there was a moment at which, at shorter range, some challenge between us, breaking the hush, would have been the right result of our straight mutual stare. He was in one of the angles, the one away from the house, very erect, as it struck me, and with both hands on the ledge. So I saw him as I see the letters I form on this page. Then, exactly, after a minute, as if to add to the spectacle, he slowly changed his place, passed, looking at me hard all the while, to the opposite corner of the platform. Yes, I had the sharpest sense that during this transit he never took his eyes from me, and I can see at this moment the way his hand, as he went, passed from one of the crenellations to the next. He stopped at the other corner, but less long, and even as he turned away, still markedly fixed me. He turned away. That was all I knew. End of Chapter 3 Recorded by Nicole Doolin on the web at NicoleDoolin.com